Welcome to the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal podcast, where we interview authors of the most impactful digital health research papers and leaders and entrepreneurs who are implementing these findings in the front lines of digital health. My name is Dr. Hamid Gambari, and I am the deputy editor of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal and the host of this podcast. If you like this episode and would like to support our effort, please visit our website at Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite platform for listening to podcasts. Well, uh, today we have the special pleasure of uh, speaking with uh, uh, Taki from UMass. Uh, welcome to our podcast today. I mean, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it. I've been waiting for this one for a while now. Um, this is a topic that has become super important in um, recent times, particularly after COVID, and that's hospital at home. So Taki, can you tell us a little bit about what hospital at home is and why it's important? Sure. And, and I mean, thank you for the question. You know, stepping back for a moment, hospital home has been around mostly in international contexts for almost 70 years. And more recently in the United States, in the past 25 years, we've really seen the emergence of the care model. And so what the care model is, is essentially a instead of going to an emergency department when you're feeling sick, feeling ill and having your evaluation in that emergency department and then being admitted, What we essentially do is we take that same individual who's presented to the emergency department, they have an eligible medical condition, and instead of bringing them upstairs to the med surge floor to admit them, we bring them home and we essentially build a med surge floor virtually in their home. So we bring remote remote monitoring technology to the home to um, allow for continuous, in our case, continuous pulse oximetry, intermittent blood pressure, um, daily weights. Uh, we install a wireless system that allows for tablet technology so that physicians can do video visits, our nurses can do video visits. And then just like in a hospital, we bring physicians virtually, nurses in person to the home for infusions of antibiotics and diuretics and medications um, and fluids. Uh, we bring ultrasound and x-ray to the home. We bring consultants virtually to the home. And so essentially the whole point behind home hospital is we care for a patient population that's predominantly elderly that we know does not particularly well in brick and mortar hospital and we bring them to the home where they do much better and so what we see out of home hospital as a care model is about 20 to 30 percent reductions in readmissions 20 to 30 percent reductions in mortality Uh, we see very high patient satisfaction and almost negligible discharges to skilled nursing facilities or short-term rehabs and so from the perspective of, a, you know, the geriatrician and all of us as, you know, almost everyone in internal medicine is a little bit of a geriatrician because of the population we care for. The geriatrician and all of us sort of uh, shouts up and down and says, this is fantastic because we get to keep folks in their home comfortable without the delirium, the infections, the loss of function, the confusion that happens in traditional hospitals. And, and, and that allows us to um, keep them safely in the community. It's such an interesting and important topic. Um, so tell me a little bit about, you know, how did you get interested in this topic and maybe a little bit about your background to our audience so they can put it in context of what you're doing. Sure, sure. It's, it's a fun question. You know, um, I, so I grew up in the Boston area. My mom's a nurse. My dad is a sort of serial entrepreneur. 
Um, I had uh, been a biology and history major as an undergraduate. And just if there's one common thread in my life, it's a love of generalism and a love of existing at the interfaces between disciplines and trying to see across some of those silos that can sometimes develop. So I was a bio and history major. Um, I spent the first three years in health system research and consulting at the advisory board company. Had just an amazing experience meeting people, trying to do all these new things for patients, and then kind of got bit by the clinical bug and and knew I wanted to care for patients as well. And so I went to medical school at the University of Pittsburgh, did an extra extra year, uh, mostly of cost effectiveness analysis research, Um, really interested in primary care-based interventions to improve vaccination rates and reduce inappropriate antibiotic prescribing. Um, and then decided it was time to come home. So I came back up to Boston where my family all is, did my internal medicine training at the Brigham. They had this really quite impressive program where they would actually help you go off to business school um, in residency. And so I extended residency. And as part of this program, I got to meet the um, super thoughtful folks at Atrius Health and at Medically Home who were at that time were co-building one of the earlier home hospital programs here in the Boston area. And so just like I'd gotten bit by the clinical bug earlier, I got bit by the home hospital bug. I got super excited and joined Atrius Health as a home hospitalist uh, about half of the time. And then the rest of the time was really working to build out a whole range of home-based acute solutions. So home hospital, certainly. We built out a mobile integrated health program called uh, Emergency Department at Home. We built out a program called Sniff at Home. And so, you know, we're, we're not that smart. We just want to do everything in the home for our frail, vulnerable elders to keep them safe there. And uh, it, it was just a really fantastic experience and um, can't say, speak highly enough of the organization and the, and the people. What an interesting background. I don't think I've ever met anyone who's had a biology and history major. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so was there a time, was there a moment in time when you realized, you know, the hospital at home is for real and it's it's here to stay? Was there an oh. point in your journey? Yes, yes. And, and I mean, thank you for that question. Um, you know, during the years I was at Atrius Health and at Medically Home before joining the UMass Memorial Home Hospital team, Home Hospital, I would say, was small and growing, although still quite nascent. And, and the major challenge at that moment was that traditional Medicare, the largest payer in the United States, wasn't yet reimbursing for Home Hospital. Everything changed with COVID. And I feel like you could probably say that um, in multiple facets and multiple domains in our healthcare system. But for a home hospital, everything changed with COVID. And so in November 2020, in the setting of an ongoing surge, um, CMS passed the acute, hair, I'm sorry, the acute Hospital Care at Home CMS waiver program. And what this did is this allowed hospitals and health systems who were struggling with bed capacity to care for patients with COVID and other serious acute um, inpatient uh, medical problems this allowed those health systems to build flexible capacity to care for patients in their home. And so before the CMS waiver, there were probably, you know, estimates very little bit, but probably less than 50 home hospital programs in the United States. And now we know there's more than 170 and growing every single day. And there's just been a huge growth over the last um, really year and a half, two years. Yeah, we certainly saw the effect and the importance of it during COVID. And now, you know, we are building a program here and it's going like crazy. And I, and like you said, the, you know, everywhere I go, it seems like someone's building a, this, this kind of a program. Absolutely. So maybe um, 
I want to spend a little bit of time uh, on a topic that's really of interest to a lot of our audience, and that's the um, the sensing technologies that are used in in uh, hospital at home. But before that, do you think that um, hospital at home is a general solution, or do you think it's it's one of those solutions that's designed for a specific population? It, it's such a great question, and I think it can be both. Although where we are now is not where we will be in the future. So where we all where we are now, I would say, is that home hospital emerged as a generalist solution for frail, vulnerable elders who would present with a variety of acute medical conditions, heart failure exacerbations, pneumonia, COPD exacerbations, um, et cetera. I think we are still in the early days of the service development. And so I think there's lots of ways in which we are moving from that generalist model to more of a specialist model where we're, bring additional, we're bringing additional diagnostics and therapeutics to the home. And so, for instance, just very, very, very tactically in the UMass Memorial Home Hospital Program, we've spent the last few months evaluating a number of telemetry solutions um, so that we can adopt and then deploy one. And that will allow us to care for folks with syncope, uh, doing antiarrhythmic drug loading, um, caring for some of the sicker patients with acute heart failure exacerbations. And so that sort of is going to nudge us in one direction. And I think there's so many examples of that in oncology. For instance, once you can do blood transfusions in the home, that allows you to open up an entire new population of patients who could benefit from the model. So do you think that there is like specific areas that are going to benefit? Um, and, and then maybe if you, if you could name specific areas that are of interest to you and kind of your building out at UMass and kind of talk about the driving forces that are like forcing hospitals and institutions to adopt this technology in those specific populations. Oh, it's, it's such a fun question, and, and there's so many layers to that. You know, I think the maybe at the highest level, what I'll say is that the forces that are providing tailwind, they're really nudging home hospital forward, are number one, we're still in this COVID pandemic. There's still hospitals across the country, across the world, struggling with capacity. And so there's just a need for more inpatient capacity. I think number two, there's just an increasing awareness that our sickest of the sick patients, our most vulnerable geriatric population, just doesn't do particularly well in the hospital environment. And they do so much better in home hospital. And in the setting of all these reimbursement and payer changes with the growth of Medicare Advantage, the shift from fee for service to value, there's so much more of a focus on these vulnerable populations that traditionally have often been missed by the healthcare system. And so I think you know the COVID pandemic, the inpatient capacity, the increasing focus on our elderly population. Um, and lastly, I think there's changing patient expectations about the care they receive. There's just so many things that are seamless and easy from the home. Healthcare is still not one of those. And I think over the next 5, 10, 20 years, what we've seen from the COVID pandemic is that organizations and systems that are flexible, that are able to pivot to a digital versus a brick and mortar approach based on the patient condition, the patient desires, the patient need, those systems are going to be the ones that are set up for success. Um, so stepping back, that's, I think, at a high level. And then to answer your very targeted question, what gets me most excited you know, I think it's a combination of things. For me, what gets me excited about home hospital most is that it's a little bit of a more holistic view of the human being. And so sometimes when we admit patients into the hospital, we're very focused on the medical issue at hand only. Uh, and that's a, a detriment. Um, you know, it's sort of a, uh, something that we as physicians and nurses and PAs and MPs need to do better at. But you have a patient that's sitting in a hospital bed. 
They're removed from their home context. So you don't know what's in their refrigerator. You don't know who they spend time with. You don't know what the fall risks look like in their home. You don't understand their social determinants. And actually, oftentimes, we're not even getting patients out of bed to see how they walk until the day of discharge. And so by bringing the patient back into their home context, you can see all those things. And it tends to equalize a little bit the focus on social determinants, functional loss, um, as well as the psychosocial and behavioral context that surrounds that patient. And it tends to equalize those things with the medical, sorry, excuse me, the medical context in a way that I think is ultimately going to be very beneficial for the patient. No, that's terrific. Um, are there specific um, sensing technologies that you think are needed for a successful um, hospital home program? And then maybe you could maybe discuss the areas that, that you just mentioned and then, and then the sensing technologies that you think are best fitted for those um, areas? It's, it, it, this is such a fun question, and, and I promise to try not to talk your ear off too much because this is an no, area of interest as also an area of opportunity. You know, I, I think at a minimum, there are some very basic sensing technologies, and I, and I almost hesitate to, to use those phrases to describe them because they're tools we've used for 100 years. They are things like you have to be able to check a blood pressure. You have to be able to check a core temp remotely and in person. You have to be able to check pulse oximetry and daily weights. And you have to be able to do those both in person and remotely. And the remote data you have to trust. So that's, that's sort of table stakes, I think. And, and most home hospital programs and vendor partners, you know, that's not something that anybody is super, you know, oh, that's all very, very basic. But, but, but you can start there. And then I think the additional piece is there needs to be some technology that facilitates remote evaluations by a physician or PA or NP. Most programs will have some sort of telehealth mediated iPad installed in the home with battery or video backup linked to a telehealth or sorry, to a, an Internet solution to facilitate telehealth. So I think that is table stakes. Most home hospital programs have solved those in a variety of different ways. I would say that the opportunities in the sort of more fun and interesting areas also are how do we bring more of what we do in the hospital outside of the hospital? So there's a lot of single lead and dual lead um, telemetry solutions that we're starting to evaluate. Some of them have short battery life, some have long battery life, some are easier to use, some are harder to use. And uh, there's also a whole bunch of physical examination tools. There's the, the EcoDuo stethoscope to listen to heart and lung sounds remotely if you want to do that. Um, there's the Taito device that allows you to look in the back of the throat. So there's all these technologies. I will say that, uh, and from a sensing perspective, things like fall detection, activity detection and monitoring are also quite interesting. Um, there's also continuous pulse oximetry that we're using in our UMass Memorial Home Hospital program that is relatively new. Most home hospital programs are not doing such. I would say that the opportunities at a very, very high level, however, remain very, very simple, which is are the devices, technologies, tools, are they designed for a geriatric population? And the short answer is that many of them still aren't. Uh, many of them are being tested and trialed on you know, 30 or 40 year old healthy individuals who don't have visual impairments, hearing impairments, haven't had a stroke, have full sort of functional um, capacity. And so uh, I would say that all the technologies I described are super interesting. And I think there is a role to play. The question is always, how are they integrated? How easy are they to use? How expensive are they? And do they really add value as opposed to sometimes the technologies can be a little bit more flash or a little bit more smoke than fire, if you will. Well, how long does a patient stay um, in the, your program? What's the average length of stay usually? 
it's also a, this is also a great question, and there's still some variation at a national level on the models that are being used. Our average length of stay is typically, and if this is in the home hospital part of it, typically five to seven days in the home hospital part with usually a day or two at the beginning. So you're kind of talking around six to eight days length of stay. Some other home hospital programs that tend to take lower acuity patients tend to be more like a two to three day length of stay. And then there's also care models that folks are using on a 30-day basis where their length of stay tends to get closer to 15, 20, 25 days. Um, so we're more in the middle. We're typically around kind of six to eight days if you include the whole length of stay. And what are you doing for monitoring, say, for example, uh, you mentioned single or multiple EDCGs. What are you doing for like a 30-day hospital stay that requires an ECG monitoring? Yes, it's a great question. And it depends a little bit. In a 30-day model, what you'll typically find is just like in a hospital, there's a period of acute illness up front where there's more monitoring. You're doing vital signs more often. You're using telemetry. You're um, just a little bit more aggressive because the patient is sicker. And so in a 30-day model, what you would typically see is a a telemetry solution be deployed often for the first one to four days. And in those situations, it might be for a patient who's diuresing with acute heart failure exacerbation. It might be someone you're thinking about an antiarrhythmic load with a, on an EP service or specialty service. Um, it might be somebody who has undiagnosed um, or sorry, occult syncope. So you don't really know what's going on and you want them on telemetry for you know, one to four days. More commonly, if you have a diagnosis at the point where you're ending that hospital part of the stay, you won't typically continue the telemetry. But let's say it's day five or day six and you've had them on telemetry for five or six days and you haven't found anything and you're still not entirely sure why they syncopize, that might be a perfect patient to continue an ambulatory um, monitor, just like we do kind of coming out of our brick and mortar facilities. You know, having these new technologies allows us to have a whole new set of problems too. So um, how are you thinking about, you know, comparing and contrasting the effectiveness of these different sensing technologies? For, for example, you know, uh, I would, you know, I want to titrate a beta blocker on a patient. I tell them to go home, you know, take your pulse, you know, after, you know, once a day or a couple of times a day and call me back and, you know, if your blood pressure is okay, I'll increase the rate. So, I mean, is that good enough or, right? Or do we need like all these like continuous ECG monitoring so we really know for sure? Oh gosh, that is also a very, very good question. And I think, you know, you, I will say stepping back, I think your first question, which is how do we know what is the right approach? In many ways, we don't know what the right approach is still. And I think to your point, sometimes because the technology is there and it's interesting and neat, you kind of want to use it. And so... And many patients, you know, continuous ECG for, you know, beta blockade titration, um, that might be overkill. It, it might not really be at all valuable and more of an intermittent approach or even an office-based approach might be very reasonable. And, and so in that situation, the technology that you deployed isn't actually helping you too much and might actually just be creating more noise than it is clinically useful signal. So that's why we spent a lot of time thinking through in our own home hospital program How do the tools we use align with the acuity of the patient? So if we have a patient, for instance, who has a skin and soft tissue infection, you know, they probably need vitals maybe twice a day, maybe three times a day, and they really just need really close monitoring of the rash and have antibiotics. And, you know, obviously I'm telling this story as a a little bit of an extreme, you know, that's a patient that you wouldn't put telemetry on. 
um, certainly. And I think that just gets to the broader point, which is that unless we're matching, just like you know, we, we, we monitor PSAs in, in older male patients, um, and even then there's a little bit of controversy around some of the, the recommendations, but we're not monitoring PSAs in women or in 20-year-old men. And it's the same thing in cardiac telemetry. We have to make sure we align the monitoring with the acuity and the need. Yeah, you know, as, as you're like describing the program, I'm starting to think, you know, I, I was really coming into this conversation, I was thinking, you know, it's a hospital that so everything that we do in the hospital, we should be doing at home. But the way you're describing it is a whole new paradigm, essentially, right? And we, we have to kind of do things a little differently when we're managing someone at home versus what we've been doing in hospital. So nece- necessarily copying what I was doing in the hospital may not be the right thing. Is, is that what I'm kind of understanding? You know, I, I love that insight and I, and I wish I had said that. <laughs> um, it, it's absolutely true. And I think to some degree what you're reflecting on is, yes, A, it's absolutely a new paradigm. But B, the second part of it is that a lot of the things that we're doing in the hospital, we're doing to manage risks that we created in the hospital. And so once you remove those risks that are created by the hospital, you start not to need to do the things that you used to do to manage those risks. And so, for instance, you know, the, the risk of, of giving the patient the wrong patient their beta blocker in the home hospital is essentially zero compared to in a brick and mortar hospital. You're not going to accidentally open the pillbox and give the patient's daughter their medication or their or their father. And so that risk really goes away. <laughs> yeah, it's super interesting. And, you know, it's probably a, a lot of opportunity for investigation of like uh, discovering new ways and better ways of doing this at home. Very exciting area for any young investigators who want to get in and kind of test different models of care, definitely. Um, so Taki, you know, you have more experience probably than anyone, you know, building these programs. Do you have a favorite mistake you've made building one of these programs? Oh, it's, it's such a good question. I, I think the two mistakes that often get made one are that folks tend to underestimate how much frontline change management is really involved. You know, you've got a busy emergency department doctor and nurse, a busy inpatient hospitalist doctor and nurse, and unless they really understand what you're trying to do and feel comfortable and trust the care model, they might feel worried sending a patient to you. And so I think a lot of times systems underestimate that just trust building that has to happen. And then I think the other element that sometimes gets missed a little bit is that it's really, really important to start off with as broad a geography of service and as broad a payer mix as possible. Because what happens is, is that you want to offer this service to essentially everybody who has an eligible condition in your emergency department and on your med surge floors. And if you only start off with maybe one or two payer contracts and maybe a very small service area, it becomes hard enough to be relevant to the emergency room doctors and nurses or the floor doctors and nurses. So those are two lessons I think that are hard learned that I think uh, many programs um, perhaps underestimate. Yeah, I'm asking for a friend. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So if someone wanted to uh, start a home health program, how would they go about doing something like that? Besides calling you and talking to you (laughs) and and listening to this podcast, of course, yeah. (laughs) Sure, sure. No, you know, at at a very foundational level, the first question you have to ask yourself and your health system are, do we have the C-suite level system support, buy-in and alignment? Do people see this as a problem where home hospital can be helpful? 
do they see home hospital as the future of acute inpatient level of care? If there's a strong yes to those first two checkboxes, you can blast through a lot of barriers. If there's some hesitations or challenges with those first two checkboxes, you're going to have a little bit more of a challenge. And so I think that C-suite level support and alignment is the first thing. And then just like anything else, you got to build the team, understand the opportunity and go after that opportunity with that team. And so I think that's what we've done at UMass in our home hospital program. And and, and I think that's really the right order of operations. Uh, definitely a very, very interesting and promising area, something that I think we'll all have to get very familiar with as we go forward. Um, so the last bit of our conversation, um, I usually call the um, Taki production function. So I want to <laughs> so kind of, we, we kind of dive into understanding, you know, all these very productive people, how they try to do it. And I, it's an area that a lot of our young listeners and young investigators are really interested in. So Taki, you, you're a physician, you're an entrepreneur, you know, you have a lot going on. So how, how do you stay productive? What does your day look like? Oh, I mean, that is a very important and super, super complex question. I will say that in many ways, I probably have more to learn from your listeners and speakers and interviewees and yourself. I think in many ways, this is just a constant balance. Um, My partner and I were having this discussion just yesterday evening. And I think that like anything, there's moments of of waxing and waning of, of how strong um, that approaches. Sometimes if there's a really big project, there can be days and weeks where it's more challenging and sometimes it's it's less challenging. I will say that the most important thing that I benefit from personally in this work at the UMass Memorial Home Hospital team is we have a phenomenal team. And so we can shift work to help folks as they get busier. Um, I have an amazing uh, associate vice president who is also our main nursing leader. She's phenomenal. Candy Szymanski, uh, Caitlin McEachern, who's our program operations manager. So what ends up happening is, is that we really can flex and, re- and, and rely and depend on each other. I think that one of my lessons from my early um, sort of training and career is that physicians tend to be really, really bad at uh, perhaps releasing control a little bit. I know I, I have this in my, my myself. And, and I've been working to try to release some of that, that level of micromanaging and really say to myself, you know, do I need to be doing this? How can I work with other people so we can contribute together? And sometimes, and, you know, Robert Pearl has talked very eloquently about this. There's a little bit of a hero complex in medicine that I think I find both in myself and sometimes in colleagues and health systems. And the more we unwind that hero complex and really just get to really caring, but really ultimately boring, amazing team-based care. The patient wins, the provider wins, the nurses win. I don't think we're there yet. And so I think that was a, the Taki production function is still something being optimized, but I would say that um, a big part of what's allowed it to be more optimized recently is just the amazing team. That's terrific. Um, Is there anything you um, want our audience to leave with? Um, Is there a place that they can go and learn more about Hospital Home and what you're doing? Oh, yes. So, I mean, there are a lot. So, A, thank you for asking that question. I I hope mostly our audience just leaves excited about the future and optimistic about all the ways in which home-based care for a variety of very vulnerable populations um, is going to look so much better in the future than it does currently. You know, there are tons of really solid resources at the Hospital at Home Users Group. Um, So this is a sort of, uh, it's soon to become a special interest group of the American Academy of Home Care Medicine. 
And so this tends to be a group of sort of um, nerdy academic docs who like to build and share best practices. So I would say that they're a great place to start. I'm always available to be a support and answer questions. I think one of the things I love about the hospital home community in general is that it's very collegial. Everybody is in it for the right reasons to do right by the patient. And we share so many best practices together to try to improve the care model. Is there a social media handle you'd like to um, leave with our audience that people can tag you and find you? So I, I'm embarrassed to say that I'm a little bit of a Luddite, Hamid, on social media. So um, my my younger sister and uh, my family members would be embarrassed that I'm admitting that, but, but I am admitting that. So I don't actually use social media very com- um, very intricately, uh, only on LinkedIn. Uh, and so for on LinkedIn, you can just look me up, Konstantinos Taki, everybody calls me, Michaelidis. Perfect, perfect. I think you probably are smarter than most of us, you know, you, you know <laughs> spending your time, uh, you know, doing important work. I, I definitely am going to leave this conversation more optimistic and more excited about home health. And thank you for taking the time and like leading the charge and bringing this innovative model to, to reality. Thanks so much. It was a total pleasure, Hamid. Thank you so much for your uh, kind questions and thoughtfulness and um, looking forward to uh, chatting again in the future. Me too.